All right. Uh, Clay Kirkland is a dear friend of ours, and uh, he's been with us before. Uh, he is a part of this family. His mom and dad are right here. They've been with us from the very beginning. And uh, I'm going to invite Clay to come and speak, and I want to pray for him as he comes. Jesus, thank you for Clay. I just pray your blessings on him. I pray that uh, he would feel uh, your pleasure as he speaks and that he would feel uh, your anointing as he ministers in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. All right. All right. Can you hear me? Great. Tom, thank you for showing me that I have at least 20 years before I have to tuck in my shirt. <laughs> awesome. I almost tucked it in this morning, and I'm glad I didn't. I've, I've got decades before I got to do that. Um, it's it's really good to be here um, for several reasons. Just let you know a few of them. One is just when I come back here. So I grew up in Marietta. Go Blue Devils. Um, thank you. And um, I contributed to that by cheering for them 24 years ago. And uh, it's just really nice to be surrounded by so many people that have been part of your team, even when you didn't want them to be part of your team for so long. And uh, God's convinced me uh, my whole life that I need help. And he continues to remind me of that, that I just need help. I'm, I'm in need of help. And uh, so I have parents that uh, I'm privileged and honored to say that uh, are still together. Uh, not uh, less than 50% of people my age get to say that these days. <laughs> And uh, I get to say that about them, and they have just taught me what family's supposed to be about, that you stick with people, uh, and they stuck with me even in my darkest years. I wish I could say darkest days, but I had years of darkness, <laughs> and um, they did that. And in, in those dark years, actually, uh, Brad Willoughby was one of my small group leaders, and uh, he, he would chase me around at, at football games and find out how intoxicated I was <laughs> to talk to me about that later. And um, he would, but uh, he never left, and uh, it was awesome. And then in college, when I was very raw and new to this whole thing of what it really is like to follow God, that's when I got uh, reintroduced to Tom and Melissa, and they became uh, heroes of mine. They became spiritual parents of mine. They taught me that not just like my parents taught me that family is family, but they taught me that the kingdom is family, and that... Um, where I was tied together with my parents and my brother through our blood, that they've been tied to me uh, through the blood of Jesus and have, have just walked me through life as spiritual parents. And so thank you so much for letting me be here uh, to do this. Um, the, I can tell you a lot about myself, but I, the thing that most people want to talk about when if they know anything about me is the fact that uh, my wife and I, Deborah, have six kids. I think, do we have a picture of them? I, I sent one to Ashley. I don't know if it made it through all the rounds. Maybe we do, maybe we don't. But I, I want to tell you what it's like to be um, a parent of six. Not really what it's like to be a parent of six, because that's really easy. It's just chaos. That's the piece of cake, okay? <laughs> Does anyone else have six or more kids in the house? There's one over there. Two, there we go, three. All right, so there's a few freaks in the house, so that's nice. <laughs> Normally, I'm alone, so this is nice. This is very comforting. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right? So, but this is, this is what it's been like because I don't, I look, 
I'm 41, trapped in the body of a 21-year-old, so I, I look very young. And people told us, they said, hey, when, when you have kids, you'll age. So we had half a dozen just to see if they were right. And they were wrong. Like, it's not true. So my wife and I still look like we're running a babysitter's club. And, um, but I think because of the way that I look, because I look so young, people are just willing to say whatever they want to say to me or ask me whatever they want to say, regardless of any kind of filter that they should have in public. So here's what it's been like over the past 11 years of us accumulating six children. When we found out that we were pregnant with our first and then we had our first, everyone's so excited for you. They're like, isn't this going to be great? You're going you're gonna to love this. You're going to love being a dad. And, and they were right, all right? So the first one was easy. It, it's awesome, okay? And then seven months later, oh, look, there they are. All right, so um, seven, there's the biggest one is Fields. That was our first one. Seven months later, we get pregnant with Cannon. And uh, we, people come up to us and they're like, perfect. Now, what they mean by perfect is stop. <laughs> Don't have any more, okay? They'll say things, isn't it great? Like you can fit them into a sedan, you know, or you're in one hotel room, isn't that nice? Because they're telling you, don't do that again. Whatever you did to do that, don't do that. And so then seven months later, we got pregnant with Gracie. And at that point, people get a little nervous. And when people get nervous, they, they lose a little bit of that filter. And so people would say things like this, like, wow, you're outnumbered now. And, you know, again, it took all of the Holy Spirit in me to not just say, you know, I didn't realize that until you said that. Thank you so much for that math lesson that three is actually more than two. That, that's genius. Thank you, sir. And uh, people, people will say this all the time and say, oh, you're having to play a little bit of zone defense, I see. Uh, because they want to try to relate it to sports because they don't know what to do because it's not their world. So they're like, maybe this will help you. So, yes. We play, we clearly play some zone defense, okay? Our defense doesn't work that well. Two weeks ago, our fifth son ate a Christmas tree light. The glass. He chewed the glass. That's if you're trying to figure that out. Yes, chewed the glass. So our defense sucks. But can you say, can you say sucks? I don't, I'm so sorry. All right. So, but we took a few years off and then we had got, we had got pregnant with the fourth. Now, that's when people get really nervous. And again, because of the way we look, they just don't have any filters. So it turns to religion. So this is what we got all the time. You raising a good Catholic family over there, I see? And it's like, no, sir, I'm not Catholic. And, uh, but thank you for asking. And um, then two years later, we got the fifth one. And it stays in the area of religion at that point. But it moves out west. So they're like, you from Utah? And... Uh, I, I literally have been asked, this is, I'm not kidding, I literally have been asked if I had multiple wives helping me out with all these kids. Nope, I, just one. And so I uh, had to let everyone down that we weren't Mormon. And then, then when you have the sixth child, no one knows what to do. So I, I'm not kidding, this is people's normal response. They just back away. They're... <laughs> It's like they don't want to catch what you got, okay? And so you can't catch this, just to let you know. And um, I've heard people groan. They're just like, ugh. And it's like, yeah, right, thank you. It's encouraging. And the thing that people, when they really want to try to be nice, they'll say this, well, how many boys and how many girls? And we're like, we've got three and three. And they're like, well, at least you have some balance. That's the nicest thing that people can say. And so... It's totally fine if this freaks you out. Uh, it is chaos, 
but it's enjoyable chaos. We actually enjoy uh, what we get to do at home. And so that's, again, how people like to interact with me. So if you have something that you want to say, it's totally fine. Here's what you don't say, okay? This is the joke that I'm really tired of hearing. Don't you know how that happens? (laughs) Just don't ask me that. All right, so just to be honest, my response will be, no, can you show me? And it gets very strange, okay? (laughs) Very strange. I said that to an Uber driver in Nashville, Tennessee last year, and she started to slow down, and I got very nervous, okay? Uh, that's the last time I said that to, uh, to a stranger, but I'll say that to you if you give me that joke, because I'm really tired of hearing that joke. We do. I know how that happens. Anyway, so that's me. That's, that's where we come from. And so uh, for 19 years, I was in ministry at the University of Georgia Wesley Foundation and finished that season of our life in May and um, do some presentations and workshops and facilitation for people now. And so I do a lot of research to get ready for those type of things, and and I love stats because I present stats and facts to people to help them understand what we're talking about and kind of give a baseline of where we're going. And so with Google, you know how Google works. You you see one thing, and there's a link to another. So I just have an accumulation of just random stats. I'm going to give you a few of those this morning just to help you out and loosen you up just a little bit in case um, the sexual references that I just made didn't loosen you up enough. Okay? (laughs) So here's one is that, and this, I just reminded of this when I saw Melissa's shoes, because they're fantastic, is that 2%, only 2% of the shoes that are sold in America are made in America. Did you know that? Isn't that interesting? So you may be, that makes you sad. If that makes you think of political things, then just banish that thought, because we're not going there this morning. So here's another one. They're, the estimation, this is their best estimation based off of um, Black Friday this year, is that Americans will spend a trillion dollars this year on Christmas shopping. And 70 billion of that will be on pets. Now that, I just, I actually can't fathom that, okay? I'm not a pets person. We, we have a litter already, so I'm not a pets person. And 70 billion, that's, wow, okay? Um, here's, here's a very interesting one. This is very interesting. Currently, the, this is for the entire world. This is from the CDC, too. The um, usage rate on sinks and hand washing after bathroom experiences for the world is currently at 19%. So, aren't you glad you shook hands this morning with people? You might want to go with that holy hug next time, guys, because this is not good, okay? 19%. That's it. One out of five is uh, clean. So... Now, this is, my, this is one that this will do it for you, especially if you're a grocery shopper, you go to the grocery store, and you get to see that huge aisle of just soda and Coke, and you can see all those two liters. The average human, American, or sorry, the average adult human produces 46 liters of saliva a month. <laughs> Who knew, right? <laughs> Guaranteed you didn't, and now you do. Next time you go to that grocery store, you just think of all that. That's just saliva. Just think about it. It'll help you ward off those things that you're going to quit anyway in January, right? You're quitting those things anyway. Now you just picture them as saliva. You're like, I don't want that, okay? So it's fascinating. But here's, here's two more stats, and these, these are a little bit more serious, and this is kind of going to take us to where we're actually going to go. I, I, I am going to teach to you today. I'm not, a, I'm not a preacher. I'm a teacher. 
and so I'll teach you some things today. But uh, these, are, these are two more stats, right? One in five Americans, this is over 40 million American, adult Americans, have been diagnosed, not have, but have been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. One in five. And in 2018, 39% of Amer- adult Americans said that they were more anxious in that year than they were in the previous year. And another 39% were just as anxious as they were that year, as they were the previous year. And if you didn't realize, anxiety and fear and worry is a worldwide epidemic, certainly a national one. It's one that the entire planet is facing, and I just believe that the church should be leading the way in that area. I, I really do, because the Bible has so much to say about it. So I'm going to talk about anxiety and, and fear today, uh, but I have some disclaimers to make just so that I can just ease a little bit of the tension because when people hear that, a lot of people get nervous. And so I just want to give you a few disclaimers. First one is my wife is a licensed professional counselor and has been for 13 years. I've done extensive training in pastoral counseling and emotional healing and emotional intelligence. And we just, that's the world that we live in. We are 100% for the psychological advancements and medications and treatment facilities and education and all that good stuff. I do not believe that anxiety is simply a spiritual issue that if you were to come up here enough and get ministry from enough people, it'd just simply go away. I just don't believe that. But the Bible talks about anxiety. And if the Bible talks about anxiety, then we should talk about anxiety. And if we're going to talk about anxiety, then we need to talk about anxiety the way that the Bible talks about anxiety, and not just the way that the world talks about anxiety. And so I am going to talk about it, and the primary reason I'm going to talk about it is because that's really not my subject, but the subject is peace. And if you didn't realize that we're in Advent season, and there's some topics that the church for centuries and centuries have followed when it comes to Advent, one of those is hope. And last week I heard that Tom did a decent job talking about hope. (laughs) And had a, had a modicum of response from a baptism standpoint. Not bad, Tom. You apparently still got it, okay? Which is good, okay? Not bad for a baptism Pharisee, okay? So when a pastor says that he needs to repent of something, you should get really nervous. But for that to be the thing that he needs to repent of, you should be very settled that you've got a good guy. But a few weeks ago, you had one of my best friends, Tate Welling, come and talk to you about enjoying God and that idea of joy, because joy is another primary subject when it comes to Advent. And the other one is peace. And so I want to talk to you today about peace, but uh, when we do, we'll we'll have to talk about that anxiety and and fear aspect. And so I just wanted to go ahead and breach that subject and and get there. But I'm going to assume that uh, I can tell you that I believe and that you're going to at least give me the credit um, and that you're going to believe this, that God, if God is God, then God can do whatever he wants. Even if you're here today and you don't believe in God yet, you would have to say that if God did exist, even though you, you not, at this point don't believe that, that if there was a God, of course he would be God and be able to do things that we can't, that he would have that power that knowledge and that power to do those things. And so when we read in the Old Testament about 
the foretelling of Jesus where God had decided, hey, I'm going to tell you and, and prepare you for what's to come, that one, he could do that any way that he wanted to, and he chose to do that through some prophets that wrote it down and that we got that recorded and still have that, uh, that we get to read, but also he got to determine, God could determine what would happen when Jesus would come, that he could determine what Jesus would be about. He could determine who Jesus would be because Jesus and God are the same, so they would say, hey, we're in this together, but we can decide what we're going to show and we can decide what we're going to do. So in Isaiah 9, when we hear about Jesus coming, I'm just going to read this one real quick. Uh, it says this, that for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. So this is clearly speaking about Jesus. And the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So again, 700 years before Jesus popped out of Mary and popped onto the scene, we found out and we were to anticipate and to expect that one of the things that Jesus would be about would be about peace. It was a 700-year expectation that finally culminated when Jesus came to earth. And when Jesus came to earth and began to teach, he had a lot of things to say about a lot of things. But one of the things, that, or one of the longest sermons that we get to see, one of the longest teachings that we have, is at the very end, right before he starts the process of being tried and being crucified, is in John. And in John, when he's speaking to his disciples before he leaves them, before they're, they're going to have to kind of launch out for those few days on their own before he shows back up and, and kind of helps them out a little bit with the Holy Spirit, he's teaching them. And in John 14, 27, he says this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Isn't that great? You know, when I think about this, this is, I'm about to show you how weird I am. When I see uh, not as the world gives, you know what I think about? When takeout places just don't give you enough fries. When you order it, you know what I'm talking Out back in Athens is the worst. They give you like seven fries. and We have eight people that want a fry. So it doesn't work. It doesn't work. That's how the world gives. Jesus doesn't give that way. He's given peace in a different measurement. But he says this, right after he says that, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So, again, he introduces that idea of worry, of anxiety and fear, but he's saying there's going to be an opportunity for you to experience something different. So not only is peace, was, was peace to be expected of Jesus, but peace was also supposed to be experienced from Jesus because he's leaving it. He didn't take it with him. He left it here. It's, it's available. And then 20 years later, a guy named Paul comes onto the scene. He starts writing letters to churches. Well, he starts making churches and then writing letters to them. And in Philippians 4, he writes this. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that's apparently still available 20 years after that. So it, it continued and continues to continue, which surpasses all comprehension, 
shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So not only was peace to be expected, it was also to be experienced, but it was also something to be exchanged for the anxiety that we currently can have. So it's, it's an exchange. And so I want to do a little deep dive into what Paul is saying and what Paul isn't saying. So this is me redeeming the $50,000 I spent on a seminary degree because I can read the Bible in different languages. And so I'm going to try to help you understand what Paul is saying and what he's not saying because he's not saying a lot of things that we assume. And he is saying some things that we're not necessarily doing. And so I want to kind of bring that to your attention. And we're literally just going to go word by word. Like I said, I'm a teacher. And so I'm going to help you uh, try to understand this. But before we go, I'm going to pray. Because one of the greatest things that I think David gave us in the Psalms was a one-sentence prayer where he says, Open my eyes that I might see wonderful things from your word. Because we need help. If David needed help. With his eyes getting open, for sure I do. And maybe you do too. So here we go. You ready? Lord, I pray, just as David prayed, that in these moments you will open our eyes to see wonderful things from this book. Amen. Like I said, we're going word for word. You ready? First word is be. Now, a lot of people have problems with that word because it's an imperative and he's basically commanding you, saying you just need to do this and people get very frustrated when people like me or people like Tom or someone on a radio just tells them to do something that they're having trouble doing. And so I want to just go ahead and let you know, on a spoiler alert, that Paul is not saying that this is easy. He's not saying that this is immediate, even though it seems that way when you read this text. And you're going to find out that he's not saying that. But what he is saying when he says be is he's alluding to the fact that this whole idea of anxiety and this whole idea of peace is a state of being issue. This isn't something where you wake up and you have a bad day and you're afraid. Or you walk outside and you see a snake and you're afraid. This isn't temporary, little quick momentary things that we're talking about here. He's talking about a state of being. And I, I want to address those, especially for those of you who would say, the state of being that I've been in for months or years or decades even would be one of those state of beings when it comes to anxiety. It's, it's just what I've been all about. I've been to this doctor. I've been to this help, so on and so forth. So I just want to address that fact that in what he's saying here, if Jesus were here today, this is what I truly believe this. You don't, this is, I consider this Kirkland theology. You don't have to believe it, but I do. If Jesus were here today and you were to read this and feel that weight that, came, that comes on you where it seems like Paul's making it just so simple and easy, but you know that it's not, I think Jesus would walk up to you as you read this and look for an answer and he would say, do not be condemned. Do not be condemned. You're not meant to be condemned by this passage. You're, that's not the point of Paul. Paul wouldn't want you to be condemned, and neither would Jesus. But I fully believe that if Jesus were here, and he walked right up to you after you read this passage, and that would be the, the thing that you've been living with, again, for perhaps maybe a long time, 
he would tell you for sure not to be condemned, but then he'd put a comma on that sentence and say, but don't be comfortable. Don't let this be where you settle. Don't let this be where you think you belong because he didn't die for you to settle into something that's less than what his kingdom is coming for. And so don't be condemned by the fact that this is a state of being issue, but don't be comfortable in the fact that your state of being might not be where it's meant to be through Jesus' resurrection and his death on the cross. Then he says anxious. Now, again, we translate that. Your, your Bible might say worry or fear, anxiety or whatever it is. Mine says anxious, but those are all great for us to understand it. But if you really want to kind of dig into this word, which is very important because Paul's using this. He's about to introduce a theme that he's going to weave throughout these two verses that we're going to read. The real depth of this meaning of this word has to do with the fact of being pulled apart. If you, if you, one, one scholar would say it this way, it's being pulled into pieces by being moved at one time in different directions. It was as if you would be quartered. It's kind of that idea of, of anxiety. Because when it comes to anxiety, what it does is it can distract you and divide you and pull you apart from where you're meant to be and pull you apart from who you're meant to be and pull you apart from who you're meant to be with. And I don't need to describe to you the state and what it feels like to be anxious, but you understand that when you're in that place that you just don't feel yourself, the reason being is because you've been pulled apart. You're, in, you're into pieces. Your, your worldview, your perspective, whatever it is, your relationships are broken. And he's saying, don't be in pieces. It's just not how you're supposed to live. You're not meant to live in pieces. And that's very important, again, because of the way he's going to use these words. And he says, you're not meant to be in pieces in any way. Because he says, for nothing. So, in no way is the best way to translate that. So, be in pieces in no way is the way that you can read this from Greek. And why he's saying that is you don't get to cherry pick. Because a lot of us cherry pick. We're like, yeah, well, you know, I'm going to be faith-filled and strong when it comes to such and such. But when it comes to money, I just, I'm a worrier. You know, or when it comes to my kids, I'm just a worrier. When it comes to the politics, and I'm a worrier, and you should be too, we cherry pick, right? And Paul's saying you don't get to cherry pick because Jesus didn't cherry pick the things that he died for. He, he died for everything, and he died for everyone. And so he didn't cherry pick, and you don't get to either. Paul's, Paul doesn't have grace for people to cherry pick when it comes to this. He has grace for other things, and you're about to find out what he has grace for. But he doesn't have grace for cherry pickers when it comes to anxiety. Now, again, it's heavy here, but he's, he's about to take us in a different direction. So we don't want to be in pieces for any one thing. But here's what he wants us to do. In everything. Now, that, that word everything, again, everything in, in English, here's what that word in Greek is speaking of. It's speaking of a total picture, but the total picture is looking at each piece at one time to make up the total picture, and it's sequential, and the reason that this is so important is because Paul's saying when you're supposed to respond and how you're supposed to respond to all this 
state of being issues that you've been in, this church, and now for us, what we perhaps might be in, it's not that you do it all at once. That's why he chose this word. One, because it has to do with the pieces that you've been broken into, but two, it has to do with the steps and that you're supposed to take. So this is not all at once. It's not, all right, January 1st, I'm never going to worry again. I'm not going to have any anxiety. Paul would say, you didn't read my verse. That's not what Paul said. Paul said, step by step, piece by piece. If you've ever read anything from Dave Ramsey, you'd know about the debt snowball. And you take one debt and you start to pay it, and then when you get that paid off, you turn that into the other payment, and you start just gaining momentum on your debt, and eventually you get out of debt. Paul is saying you need to have an anxiety snowball. You don't start with all of them. You start with one of them, and you get momentum in that area, and then you transfer that momentum onto the next one, and onto the next one, and onto the next one, and eventually you will have momentum of coming out of this state of being and into the state of being that Jesus died for you to have, but it doesn't happen all at once. It's a process according to Paul and the words that he chose to write. That should be comforting to us. And he says, but in everything, by what? He's going to give us three things. Prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. Prayer is the easy word. It just means your wishes. So that's your general word. But then he's going to define what those wishes should be about with the word supplication. Because the word supplication is actually very specific. It has, is, the best way to define it is this. Heartfelt desires that come from personal needs that are urgent. Heartfelt desires that come from personal needs that are urgent. And so the question that I would want you to consider today is, what's personal to you that's giving you anxiety? What is urgent to you that's weighing you down, that's pulling you in different directions to where you feel like you're in pieces? Are you tired of carrying that today? How does it feel to carry that by yourself? How does that feel to, how does that, how does that feel to your soul? How does that feel to your family to carry that? And are you willing to take a different route that Paul is giving us? Because he wants to, this to be personal. Because he knows that these things that weigh us down are the things that keep us from being who we're supposed to be. So your prayers aren't supposed to just be general like, hey, Lord, just help me. Specific, personal, heartfelt, the things that are urgent, the things that are right before you is what Paul wants you to do and to deal with. And then he says with thanksgiving. Now, thanksgiving might be strange to you because in this passage at this point, you've received nothing that you need. He put this in here before you get what you want. He even put this in here before you get what you need. Why would he do that? Because I think Paul realized, especially with, if you look at the way that he teaches on Thanksgiving throughout uh, his body of work in the New Testament, when he teaches about Thanksgiving, he doesn't necessarily teach about Thanksgiving as future appreciation for the things that you're going to get. Now, that's fine, if you, and I, I, you can prove that in other ways and other authors and stuff like that for you to believe God for things you don't have yet and to go ahead and thank him for it. I think that's faith and I think that's awesome. That's just not what Paul's teaching you here. That's just not what Paul's alluding to here. What Paul's alluding to here is your gratitude should be anchored in the things that God has already done in the past 
and the things that God will always be to you in the future. It's who God always will be and what God has already done. And I think the reason that he does that is because when you start to present personal, urgent, heartfelt things to God, it's pretty easy to just stay as a navel gazer and just to lose sight of the fact that God has done things for you already and will be things for you always. And when we do that with thanksgiving, we set our attention onto eternity and not just on the crisis that we're facing. And when we do that, we're able to see who God has been and who God will be. And it helps. He's just trying to help us out. It's, it's, he's just being helpful. So thank you, Paul, in that regard. Then he says, present your request to God. Now, that's a direct reference. It says make known, but this, the word is present. And that's a direct reference to the Old Testament and to the New Testament where Jewish people would present offerings to God. And they would travel sometimes days and weeks with possessions that they had, things that they've made, or money that they had earned, and take it all the way to the presence of God, all the way to the altar. They would take it all the way. It was them taking it. And Paul's making reference to saying these things that are personal, these things that are heartfelt, these things that are urgent, these things that have pulled you into pieces, you're to take them all the way to God. It's what you do. You don't just try to throw them out there and maybe never think about it again. It's you take them all the way. Now, the reason this is very important, the thing that I've had personal experience of before I ever knew Greek, was before my wife and I had a litter, we had infertility for three and a half years. And two failed surgeries from my wife told us, and three other doctors told us that we would never have kids. And there's a gentleman over there in a, sitting in a button-down shirt, and I was sitting in the exact spot where he's sitting when I was 29 years old, and I was waiting on my wife to get back from a work trip, and I was going to meet her here to take her back home because she had rode with someone else, and I came, this is when Riverstone had two services, I came to the first service, and it had a terrible time. I just was feeling so sorry for myself and feeling so terrible. It had been three years at that point, and it just was hard. And I sat right over there and then went out to go pick her up. And I looked at my phone. She had a, had a missed call, called her back. This was before everyone was just texting. And so I actually heard her voice, and she said, hey, we're late. Uh, it's going to be two more hours. And so I didn't know what to do, so I reluctantly came back into the service and sat in the same spot. And during worship at that point, I had the clearest vision I've ever had in my life. And I saw myself taking those three years of hurt, of worry, of anxiety, of pain, of trauma, because it's a traumatic thing to go, to be monthly reminded that it's not working. And I took all that and took all the pain that we had from losing uh, my wife's mother two years before that and just took all that and I was just placing it in front on the ground of something. I couldn't see what it was. I was just placing it on the ground. And, and the hardest one to take was the two months before I sat in that seat right over there is Deborah got pregnant and nine weeks later had a miscarriage. 
And what we had desperately waited for for three years got taken away in a moment. And, I had, and that was the last thing that I dropped on the ground. And right when I finished dropping that last piece, my camera angle and the vision started to pan up. And I saw feet get placed on all of that stuff that I just had laid down. And it was the feet that were sitting on a throne, and I knew that at that point that it was God. And that I had just placed all that before God. And before that, I had been carrying it. I'd maybe talk to him about it every now and again. I'd definitely complain about it. But I'd never exchanged it. Because when you present something, according to the way that Paul has given it to us here, it's an exchange of something. And when you exchange, you have to give something up in order to get something. And I had just never been willing to give it up. Because I thought that I needed to carry it and it had become comfortable to me. But I, I gave it up at that point. And what Paul is telling you and telling me in Philippians 4, 6 is that that's the work that we're to do. We are to take those things that are personal, take those things that are heartfelt, take those things that are weighing us down and pulling us into pieces. And through fighting, with, through fighting for thanksgiving and gratitude, we exchange those and give those and place those at the feet of Jesus. That's the work that we're supposed to do. Now, the good news is that he continues in verse 7. And he says, when we do that, the peace of God. Now, most of us probably know that in Hebrew, the word peace is shalom. My kids went to a walk through Bethlehem event last night. And Cannon came home, my second oldest, and said, Hey, Dad, you know... Um, how people say hello in the times of Jesus? I said, I do. I said, they say shalom. And I know that you're probably thinking, why don't you just let them tell you? And I was like, I'm just not that type of dad. And so I was like, <laughs> I'm just not. So I know you pray for me and pray for him for sure. But I was like, yeah, it's shalom. And he's like, that's right. And I said, yeah. I said, do you know what shalom means? And he, he like gnarled his face and he goes, it means hello. I just told you that. And just walked away. And I was like, no, come back. Because it doesn't mean that. And so, but, so we, we probably know shalom. But this, this word isn't shalom. It's the Greek word. And uh, I won't try to impress you with the fact that I can pronounce it. But I'll tell you what it means. And it, the reason that this is so important is because what Paul's already said. And the specific word he used for anxiety. And the specific word he used for everything. And now the specific word that he's using for peace. Because it means to tie together things that aren't in order to make them whole. Tie together, bind together things that aren't in order to make them whole. Now, what's important here, probably the most important that you're going to get is that at this point, you need to ask your question and, and hear the answer of what's being bound together, what's being tied together. What is God pulling together? He's not, just want to go ahead and tell you, he's not pulling together at, in, in what Paul's teaching you, miraculous plans that will just pop together and then you'll have everything that you've ever wanted and your circumstances will just miraculously change in the moment. He, he's not promising you that. He's not providing that here. That peace isn't binding your circumstances together. 
Because your circumstances aren't the things that have been pulled apart. Your circumstances have pulled you apart by the way that you've worried about them. What's being pulled together is you. You're the one that's going to be brought back to wholeness. And you're going to be able to be who you're meant to be. And you're also going to be brought back together with God. Because anyone, and myself included, in seasons of anxiety, when you're full of anxiety, you're not full of the experience of the presence of God. When your focus is on what you don't have and what you're worried about, you, you don't have much time to be thankful for what God's given you and to enjoy that relationship. So what the peace of God is doing is not changing your circumstances, according to Paul. It's changing you. The peace of God doesn't answer your prayers. It answers the deepest desire of your heart to be connected to God and to be who Christ died for you to be. That's what the peace of God does. That's what Paul is promising here. That's what's going to be bound together is you in your circumstances. And he says, the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, which is so fantastic. Because what this is really saying is this, the peace of God which is superior to anything merely human. The things that we worry about, the things that are on our mind, the things that grip us with that anxiety are human issues. They're part of the human experience. And the peace of God, according to Paul, is superior to anything that is human. It's superior. It doesn't mean that you can't think about it. You, you should think about the peace of God. You should experience it. And what you're going to experience is something that isn't human. It's superior. And it's superior because it's supernatural. And it's supernatural because Jesus is the prince of peace. And it's himself that you're experiencing. The exchange is your anxiety for Jesus himself. That's the exchange. You get to give that to him, and he gets to sit on his throne and make that his footstool, and in return, he gives you himself. And the peace that you get in these situations will do two things, because he says that it will guard. And the word guard is really a military term to describe a sentinel that both does offensive work and defensive work. And I think the defensive work that it does is that it's going to guard your heart. It's going to guard the core of who you are from ever getting broken in that circumstance again. It's going to take that cord of three strands and bind it together to where the circumstances perhaps will continue to be what they are, but you will continue to be different. Because it will guard you from being broken by that circumstance again. And it says it will guard your mind. That word mind is actually the output of your thinking. The result of your thinking. So not only will it defensively guard your, mind, or guard your heart, but it will offensively create for you new ways to approach same circumstances. Because when Jesus enters into a circumstances, things always change. Always, And what will change in those circumstances is you and the way that you react to them and the way that you respond to them and the way that you handle them. When I had that vision over there, it was awesome. It was the first time that I experienced peace in that three-year process. 
when I got out of that second service and my wife was dropped off, she did not tell me that she was pregnant. For six months after that, she continued to tell me that she was not pregnant. Our situation continued to be difficult. It continued to be painful. It continued to be the hardest thing that we've faced. But we were different in the midst of that process. And it could have lasted for years and years after that. But clearly the floodgates opened after that, okay? <laughs> and God, if you're listening, you can close those floodgates anytime you want to. But we were different. We were different because Jesus was there. And he exchanged it. Our anxiety for himself. Now, I'm a doubter and a skeptic. That's just who I am. Blame it on the fact that I have a lawyer as a dad. Blame it on that I'm an Enneagram 8. I don't care what you blame it on. It's true, okay? So for those of you who are trying to hear this and you're like, but, here's, here's the but that I'll address. Paul says what he says in, in verse 6, and then immediately turns to the fact that the peace of God is coming. What Paul doesn't do in Greek or any kind of translation that you read after that is tell you when. He doesn't tell you when that's going to happen. It, you can't find it in the Greek. It doesn't tell you when. Why? Because he doesn't know. Paul didn't know when it would happen for you. Just like he didn't know that when it would happen for the Philippian church. I can't tell you when it will happen. I, I would never stand up here to profess that I'm an, uh, a master of knowing about God's timing. I think that's one of the mysteries of life. But I can tell you this. Every time that I've been in a season where I've exchanged anxiety for the Prince of Peace, I haven't gained any understanding on God's timing, but I've gained immense understanding on God's goodness. And it's always worth it. It's always worth it. Even if you don't get what you want, it's always worth it to do that exchange. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much. for being with us, for making your home in us, your willingness to continue to minister and love and heal broken people is amazing. We honor you today. We thank you today. And Holy Spirit, I just invite you to come. And through your kindness, speak to your people. I pray that you'd speak to those who've been in seasons far longer than I've ever experienced. And that you'd speak to them with a tone of hope. You'd speak to them with a tone of joy. You'd speak to them with a tone of peace that they would know. That you've left your peace on this earth for us to have. And Lord, I pray that in the timing that you see fit, that it would come. And God, we just confess that we can't do this on our own. We confess that we have limitations, and we thank you that with us there are things that are impossible, but with you there are no things that are impossible. 
And so God of the impossible, come and do what you love to do. In Jesus' name, amen.